Well, thank you. I got to tell you, Black Rock rocks. <laughs> you guys know how to worship. You did my heart good just watching you. Let, let's pray. Father, I do thank you for gathering these people that love you. Obviously, Lord, you have touched their hearts so deeply long before I've ever met them. And Lord, we just ask that you would touch us anew. You are the kind of God who your mercies are new every morning. So we pray for those new mercies as you open up your word to challenge us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last summer, just to kind of shut our brains off, my wife and I decided to go out for a date and watch San Andreas starring The Rock. Now, guys, if you want to impress your wife on a date and create a romantic atmosphere, I'm not sure that you should go to a movie starring The Rock. I mean, he is just this monstrosity that makes you feel like an absolute puny kind of guy. And in this movie, he was doing everything. I mean, he was rappelling down a cliff and saving a woman in a car. He, he could uh, fly the helicopters. He was diving underwater. He, flew a, he piloted a boat over a tsunami. I mean, who does that? The one unrealistic part of the movie was San Andreas. You know, there's a big fault and, and, and the ground broke open. So there's this big fault. And so he and his, his wife were driving and they had to stop because the fault had stopped the road. So they had to find a way around. And I'm just thinking... He's the rock. Why doesn't he just push the plates back together? I mean, he's done everything else in this movie. It seems like he could handle that. Well, we're walking out, and, and, and now I'm, I'm feeling a little bit insecure, and I'm like, man, I, it's like he's a different species than I am. And Lisa was, Gary, I'm not going to lie to you. You're a really good man, but if there's an earthquake, the rock would be a nice guy to have around <laughs> So now I'm trying to build myself back up. I said, well, well, could he run 10 miles in 90 degree heat like I did this morning? And Lisa was like, with somebody on his back. <laughs> so I, I stopped right there. I didn't want to ask what I thought next. I wanted to say, well, can he preach a sermon like I have to next morning? And I was afraid my wife would say, Gary, the rock's body is a sermon. <laughs> and our date night would be irretrievably broken. So I just shut it off right there. But the reality is we live in a world where us guys, we don't look like the rock and the women don't look like Barbie. No, should you try to or aspire to. We live in a messy world. And so we have messy marriages as messy individuals. And we're talking today about how in the messy world do we have relationships, particularly marriages that shine. How do we keep cherishing each other in this messy world? My wife and I were at a dinner party some time ago, and there's a couple seated across from us. Rather quiet man, the kind of guy, to be honest, that feels more at home in the science fiction world than in the real world, and he hadn't participated in the conversation hardly at all, and I, I wanted to bring him in, so when something came up, I said, well, well, don't chefs think such and such? His wife immediately broke in and said, he's not a chef, he's a cook. Chefs prepare things, he, he just heats things up. Now, the reality is he, he works at a rest home. He has about 200 residents that he cares for every day. And, and he tries to do his best, but you know what's tough? An administrator says, we've got to cut the budget. We've got to cut back. And, and, and so he does have to just heat some things up. And she was completely dissing what her husband did. It's obvious she was concerned that I might accidentally show some respect to her husband that it was clear she didn't think he deserved. And we've all seen marriages like that. Maybe some of us have even been in marriages like that. And I always wonder, what, what's the point of that? 
Does you think they're going to go home to a really nice evening and say, didn't we have a wonderful time? Can I, can I rub your feet until you go to bed? Why, why do we show such contemporaries? When she could have looked at him as really in part of a noble cause, what if she were to say, you know what? My husband's trying to feed 200 residents on a reduced budget. I'm going to pray that God will bless him. The same God who fed the crowds with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. Why wouldn't she look at it as a noble endeavor? Well... There's that old saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. And nothing is more familiar than marriage. We get to know each other. And if we're not careful, if our minds aren't informed by God's word and our hearts by God's spirit, we can just drift along with the world. And the more familiar we become with our spouse, the more we can show contempt instead of cherish. But we don't have to go there. Now... About two-thirds of the way through, there's a huge section here for singles. So if you're single here, I don't want you to check out because what we're going to say has huge implications for who you decide to marry. So if you're single, please stay with me. But let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. And we're going to get into the whole biblical concept of cherish. This is the story of where God first meets Jerusalem. It's an incredible story. And we think of Jerusalem as this world city, this historical city. I mean, everybody knows Jerusalem. It's one of the best-known cities in the world, but it wasn't always that way. There was a time when nobody knew Jerusalem, and the reason Jerusalem is what it is is because it has been cherished by the Creator, by God Himself. And here's how they meet. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Jerusalem didn't come from famous pedigrees. It, it wasn't that God saw Jerusalem and said, boy, the parents are, are, are such high standing, even royalty. Got to get to know her. She, she was nothing. Her, her parents were nondescript, even eventually enemies of Israel. Now, we could be attracted sometimes by somebody's pedigree. I mean, women, just be honest, single women. Would, would Prince Harry be that hot of a date if his parents weren't royals? Really? But, but, but Jerusalem didn't have that. She had nothing that was drawing her to God, and yet God gave her attention. Verse 4, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. On the ancient Near East, clothing a child, cleansing a child, and, and sort of medicating that child with salt was to grant that child legitimacy. Children were often just left out to die. But when parents decide that we're going to wash this child, we're going to cleanse this child and clothe this child, that's them accepting that we will receive this child into the family. And here we're learning that, that nobody wanted to do that. Jerusalem didn't have anybody that would choose her. She was left completely alone. Then we read in the next verse, And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. Now, romantic comedies are famous for couples that meet cute, right? 
I mean, writers just try to think up ways. How do we make them meet cute? You know, they spill coffee on each other. They get into a little fender bender or they're opposites in two competing businesses or something like This is meeting ugly, all right? This is meeting as ugly as it can. There's nothing really cute about this. And, and, and we like to think of babies as naturally cute, Gerber babies and all of that. And, and most babies are. But can we be honest that all of us have seen babies that... You really wouldn't want to put them on a Gerber baby bottle. I mean, they're still loved, still valuable, just as accepted, but kind of take you back. My, my, my wife and I met one. We were at a conference. It was for national football players, national league, NFL football players. And they would do it at an out-of-the-way resort so nobody would bother them for autographs. And, and I guess got to tell you, when you're walking around these guys, you don't understand how big football players are because they're always around football players. When you see them in real life, I mean, these are mountains with necks and arms. It is freakish how big they are. And, and we saw this one man, and he's at least 350 pounds, and he just had this wild mountain manish look. You know, like, you, you know those guys that look like they're 99% testosterone? He's like 100% testosterone. You couldn't squeeze a teaspoon of estrogen out of him if you put him through a wine press. I mean, he's just... And, and, and then we saw his wife next to him, this 90-pound little petite wisp of a woman. And, and the sick way, I was just looking at him, like, to my wife, is it safe for them to breed? I'm just, I'm, I'm just not... Sh- <laughs> but then we found out they already had... The wife's pushing a baby stroller, and my wife loves babies. She can't wait till we have grandkids. We don't yet. And so she goes up, and there's this little pink blanket, and and she pulls it back and almost shrieks. (laughs) Baby got the dad jeans. (laughs) Still valuable, still loved, but this is not a baby that you would naturally choose and put in a commercial. That's Jerusalem. She was a mess, and nobody would have chosen her for her beauty. She was left alone to die, but we're told in verse 6 that God says, I said to you, in your blood, live. And that's the God we serve, a God who breathes life when no one else cares. Everyone is rejected, and God says, it is my decree that you should live. And that's what a good, godly marriage does. It breathes life into each individual. It forgets contempt. That tears people down. That destroys people. A good marriage breathes life. And it is a tragedy, I believe, when in the church, marriages suck the life out of people. When people die, their self-esteem dies. Their sense of personality dies. Their peace dies. Their, Their joy dies. That's not a good sign. We serve a God who breathes life, and we should do that to each other, but, but not, not just life. Israel, Jerusalem is given more life. She's caused to flourish. Look at verse 7. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Now, in the ancient Near East, putting your garment over someone is basically to offer marriage. God is choosing Jerusalem now to be his bride, not just to give her life, but to be his beloved, to cherish her, to take take her into himself. 
Now, why is that so key? Well, in the ancient Near East, most marriages were arranged, weren't they? You got married because your parents would say, son, there's your wife. Shake her hand. Go meet her. Daughter, there's your husband. Here's the one we've chosen for you. And you got married to them because somebody told you to marry them. It's not the case here. Breaking with the culture, God says, I chose Jerusalem. It was my choice. I wanted her. And if you feel cast off this morning, if you feel like one of the ugly ones or the one that somebody has left, your life is such a mess, you have no one to choose you, you serve and worship a God who says, I say live, and he wants you to live and take you to himself. And he didn't just choose her. This is what's so amazing. We see in verse 10 that he spoils her. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth, shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I I put a ring on your nose. Not a gross big bull ring, but the kind of cute little rings they have in Portland, that kind of thing. I guess I got to say Portland, Oregon out here because you probably think Portland, Maine. And earrings in your ears. Anyway, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. Notice God doesn't just barely provide for her. Well, I chose you, so just make do with the hand-me-downs. No, he spoils her. She's wearing Gucci and Chanel. She's walking in Jimmy Choo shoes. His wife doesn't shop at, at, at TJ Maxx or Ross. She goes straight to Saks Fifth Avenue because she is cherished by her husband. And it's not just what she wears, it's what she gets to eat. Verse 13, you ate fine flour, fine flour and honey and oil, the good stuff. Not just the nutritious and healthy stuff, but the tasty stuff. She doesn't go to some bargain basement grocery store. She gets to shop at the organic aisle of Whole Foods where everything costs twice as much because her husband wants her to have the best of everything because he cherishes her. Now, after being cherished like this, meeting ugly, being abandoned, being chosen, then being clothed and spoiled and being nurtured, what happens? What does this ugly, rejected baby born in its gunk and its gore, what has happened? Verse 13 and 14. You grew exceedingly beautiful, fit, To be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. For it was perfect because of my splendor that I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. From cast off to queen, from rejected to royalty, this abandoned baby now becomes the envy of the entire earth. Not because inherently she was that, but because she was cherished into that. You got to understand the biblical picture here. God did not choose Jerusalem because she was lovely. Jerusalem became lovely because God chose her and cherished her. It's a huge transformation. And that's what life-giving cherishing does when we're inspired by God. Look at what Jerusalem became. Lamentations 2.15. Jerusalem is called the perfection of beauty. The joy of the whole earth. Not only is she a joy to her husband, the whole earth envies the one that nobody else would have chosen years before. And Christian marriage 
The same way is about releasing that perfection of beauty in our spouse, meeting each other in the messiness of who we are and what we're not and our hurts in our past. And in that messiness, we cherish each other, even though it's messy, and we become more beautiful yet. Men, as God loved Jerusalem, so Jesus loved the church and were to love our wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. This isn't just some story telling us about God choosing Jerusalem. It tells us the heart of a Christian man for his wife. There's no privilege in here. In fact, I think a better image comes from the ballet community. George Balanchine, a famous choreographer and and one-time dancer, coined a phrase called, the ballet is woman. What he was saying is that the ballet is really all about the ballerina, her strength, her grace, her balance, her loveliness. And and the whole purpose for male dancers, the ones that succeed, they know how to showcase her and support her so she could do more than she could on her own. But that's his job is to put her in the spotlight. Men, what if we took that as our attitude? As God cherished her, we said, I want to cherish this wife and all her messiness. And I want to support her. I want to build her up. I want to turn her so everybody can see her. And like a great dancer at the end, I'm finally throwing her into the spotlight. And when she gets the thunderous standing ovation, I'm stepping back into the shadow, breathing hard because my job is done, letting others adore her. So often in Christian marriage, it's like, why isn't she supporting me? Why isn't she doing that for me? Women, the same call is for you. Jesus said we should love as we've been loved. He's given us an example, love each other as I have loved you. And he's speaking to women when he said that. Because you need to know your husband didn't grow up in an affirming world. It's a world where just about every one of us gets beaten up. Metaphorically, if not literally. We're, we're, we're chastised, we're ridiculed, whether it's siblings, whether it's parents, whether we're getting cut from a team, whether it's just others that just make fun of us. Most of us men go through this life with all of these scars. And the reality is that you often don't understand. One of the greatest mysteries to us is that a woman chose us. We've been defined by so many other people as someone who doesn't quite measure up. And yet somehow we we got a woman that that chose us and said, I I, I want you. And and we're afraid that when you get to know who we really are, you can have the same attitude as the coach who cut us or the sibling who ridiculed us or the parent who said we don't quite measure up. So you didn't marry a perfect man. Maybe you married a boy who was slow to grow up and a bit scrawny and slight and he was bullied his whole life. And by the time you met him, he was normal height and normal size and, and you'd never know that, that insecurity that he carries because it's just a visceral part of him. That's, it's what he knew from, from growing up. And yet it frustrates you because you see glimmers of it sometimes, the, the lack of confidence, the insecurity, the inability to, to make a decision. And it, God has cried over how that boy has been hurt. And so when you get so frustrated because of the messiness of your husband and, and you just say flippantly to him, oh, just, just grow up and be a man. God cries at this boy he wanted to be cherished and nurtured into the strength and the excellence of who God made him to be is being told by his wife. You know your siblings when they ridiculed you? They were right. That coach that cut you, I'd cut you too. Every, everybody that said you don't measure up, you really don't. You're a cook, not a chef. Instead of cherishing him into his beauty, 
you increase his hurt. And if we're not careful, we can become messengers and Satan instead of servants of God when we define our spouse by their messiness instead of the call of God in Christ and grace. So men, why is your wife so sensitive to other people's opinions? Women, why does your husband seem so arrogant and afraid to ever show a weak side? I mean, why does your wife maybe spend more money than she has and buy clothes that aren't comfortable trying to maintain some kind of image that she feels like she never measures up to? Women, why do some of your husbands occasionally try to find escape in electronic fantasy? Don't just tell me what they do. Tell me why. Because it's not until you understand why that you can be a redemptive aspect of cherishing them back. Because Christianity isn't about acknowledging the perfection of each other. It's about cherishing each other with grace in our messiness. And we know that intellectually, but how we resent our messiness in our hearts. I'm not excusing sinful or immature behavior. But what if we took the long-term view of cherishing? What if a woman knew she was married to a beat-up man and she said, You know what? You give me 20 years cherishing this man, encouraging him, and building him up, and getting him to look at himself and talk about himself differently, you're going to see what he's going to become. I mean, if we had a wife like that, we knew that this was her hurt, and this was her challenge, and this is how she's, she's I'm going to cherish you so much, you're going to be looked at like a queen when I get done with you. That's what it means for you to be married to me. This is a biblical call. Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. As God the Father loved Jerusalem, so Christ loved the church. So husbands are to love their wives. It doesn't say just love the most excellent of wives. It doesn't say just love the most cherishable of wives. It says love her if she's your wife. And in the same passage, wives, it says you must respect your husband. It doesn't say respect the strongest of husbands or the smartest of husbands or the husbands who look and act like George Clooney. It says love, respect your husband. And this is where I want to give a word to singles. If you're single, I want you to pay attention to this. If this is the call of scripture, that you are to choose someone and then cherish them in their messiness, that there is no escape clause, you must be thoughtful. You want to get counsel. You don't want to be led astray by infatuation because it goes beyond reason for me to suggest that every spouse is as easy to cherish as any other spouse. We know that's not true. Not every spouse is as easy to respect as another spouse. Not every spouse is easy to adore as, as other spouses. That's just a fact of life. But when you choose your spouse, they become the one that you're to cherish. They become the one that you're to respect. A good friend of mine ran the Comrades Marathon last year. It's in South Africa, and they call it a marathon, but it's actually 55 miles. They still get a horde of people to do it, believe it or not. And it's usually a hot day. You have 12 hours to run the 55 miles. You do the math. It's not an easy thing to do. And here's the course. And you might say that looks exactly opposite, but the reality is they run it a different direction every year. One year they call it the downhill year. One year they call it the uphill year. It's never easy. It just trashes your legs in different ways. But you can choose every other year if you want to run the up year, if you want to run the down year. Whatever year you choose, you get the same 12 hours. Nobody forces you. You get the same medal if you finish. You have the same time. You get to choose. Do I want to run uphill or I want to get downhill? But when you put your foot on the line and the gun goes off and you start, you run the course 
You've chosen. Singles, that's what it means to get married. You're choosing the course you have to run. It is the most important decision you will ever make next to choosing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. So I implore you to make it a wise choice. Involve your parents. Involve the community. Let people help you because it's this high call. Keeping with the theme of a marathon, you know, if you ever look at the end of a marathon, it can be a rather ugly place. I mean, it's inspiring. You see the fast people come across at 2.30 and 3 o'clock, 3.15. I mean, the, the three hours and 15 minutes, those people are still pretty fast and pretty fit. And then the clock keeps going. You get into four hours and 4.30 and 5, and you kind of want to look away. People are suffering, and they're hobbling, and they're throwing up things, and they're dropping things, and you just, you, you just really don't want to see it. My wife has been a saint. She's been at the finish line of many a marathon. And when I cross that line, I got to tell I, I, I need three things. I need a place to sit down. I need something to drink and just a little bit to eat. Something with a little protein, a little bit of salt. And Lisa's just a saint. She'll take me off to a place. She'll find a place for me. She gets me the water. She gets me something that I can eat. And, and it's hard to describe, but as I'm sitting there, utterly depleted at my end, with my wife cherishing me, with my wife taking care of me, it's just like, I slowly become a new man. She takes care of me. She hydrates me. She gets me to rest, and I feel the strength come back. The color comes back. I can think. I can breathe. I believe I'm going to live. <laughs> Not recommending marathons, but if you do run one, I wish you could have my wife take care of you afterwards. I want you to imagine your spouse running into your arms on your wedding day like they've just run a marathon. They've been beaten up and challenged and ridiculed, the best of them, insecure. And the way you cherish them will either confirm the messiness which they define themselves or release the cherishing grace that helps release their excellence. Wives, you could become the most wonderful wife in the world by telling your husband this. Look, you've made it across the finish line into my arms. I'm yours and you are mine. We're one. I'm thrilled with you. I love you. You can rest in my acceptance. You can be recharged with my affection. I won't pull away when I get to know you in your messiness. I'll draw closer. I won't disrespect you when I find the dark within you. I'll pray for God to flood you with his light. I won't compare you to any other man because you are to me the only man of my affections. You are the standard. You are my man of all men. I won't look at another man. I won't touch another man. I won't compare you to any other man. I will feast my eyes and fill my heart with my love for you. Husbands just change the gender and that's how we love and cherish a messy wife. And when we do that, we can actually make a culture that only looks at people who aren't messy in their youth, in their beauty, in their strength. We can even make them envious. It's easy to cherish somebody who seems perfect and beautiful and spotless. I have a picture of a couple of friends here that look like a perfect couple. He's a doctor. He's actually a surgeon general of Arkansas. His wife is, is beautiful with flawless skin. When he was a doctor in training just going through school, just at the start. He was doing rounds with his 
attendant physician or resident physician, whatever the, the word is, and he couldn't really help at all. He was just kind of shadowing the doctor. They went into a room, and there was this octogenarian couple. The wife was in a wheelchair. She'd had a neuromuscular disease, and so she couldn't speak. She just kind of sat tilted in the chair, and her mouth would be agape, and she could drool a little bit, and occasionally moan. He never heard her speak, and the doctor's talking to them, and, and Greg's just watching this, and he was shocked because the husband was so spry and full of energy and optimistic and, and energetic, and he said, usually it's the other way around. It's the guy in the wheelchair and the wife that's in better shape, but, but here it was reversed. And then Greg looked down at the chart, and he noticed that they had the same address. The husband wasn't picking her up from a rest home and bringing her to the doctor's office, the hospital. He lived with her. He cared for her. And as a doctor in training, Greg knew the care that meant, the full-time, around-the-clock work that it meant to this man in his 80s. And Greg said, as you might expect a young man to say, please, God, not me ever. Greg said, I'll be honest, I, I pitied that man where marriage had brought him. The doctor got a page. He had to leave the room. He left Greg with this couple alone. Greg couldn't say anything. He wasn't trained enough to do it. It was sort of awkward, and the, the husband kind of picked up it was awkward, and so he started the conversation. He says, you know, this one here, she's my fishing buddy. I said, what? Yeah, she's my fishing buddy. We've, we've gone all up and down like that, that lake two miles away. We'd set trot lines in that lake. We caught all kinds of fish. Yeah, for 50 years, this one here, she's my fishing buddy. And he was beaming. And he leans over. And he wipes a little drool from her cheek. Just like Greg could imagine admiring his young wife with flawless skin. And for 10 minutes... That man kept Greg enthralled with the stories of their marriage, the stories of his love, and how much he was attached to this woman that nobody would think to choose in that state. Here's what Greg said. For the next 10 minutes, I was transfixed as this man who moments before I had pitied regaled me with story after story of his life together with his wife. It was incredible. What was even more incredible, however, was the change that occurred in me. Watching this elderly man caress his wife's hand, kiss her cheek, wipe away her drool, and joyfully recount their lives together provoked a powerful transformation of perspective within me. Gone was any semblance of pity. Instead, in its place, was envy. A young doctor, a beautiful wife, envies an octogenarian with a woman who will never walk, may never speak, and needs her drool wiped away. But she was cherished, and Greg saw something that shamed his own view of love, a love that was based on the beautiful and the strong and the healthy, not on the messy and the old and the diseased. Men, I don't know how messy your wife is at this point in life. But in God's eyes, she's a ballerina. Support her, turn her, encourage her. Get her into the spotlight so others can see the beauty as this man did. Don't look at her as a woman in a wheelchair who's drooling and moaning. Look at her a woman who had vigor and life and who was one of the best fishing partners a man could ever hope for. She's a ballerina. 
Women, I don't know what your husband does, but I know this. He's not a cook. He's a chef. Treat him like one. Let's pray. Father, Scripture tells us that you loved us when we were yet sinners. In our rebellion, in our messiness, you showed us your grace and your mercy, and you gave us life. Lord, let us give that same life. Let us cherish that same mess in our spouse. I pray, Lord, that Black Rock would be known for marriages that just seem different and point others to you. And Lord, for the singles here this morning, I just pray that you would give them wisdom and understanding, that they would understand the high call of marriage, and they would make the choice in a wise way so that they could honor you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.